directed us to not forsake the assembling of ourselves together so much the more as we see these things coming to pass and we're certainly seeing them come to pass very rapidly now as there's open uh, hate for the Constitution in Washington now and they're bypassing it entirely and going communism and have committed treason against the people of the United States of America very openly now and things are getting uh, hotter and hotter day by day and they're talking openly now of civil war uh, on both sides of the fence so this thing is encroaching upon us very rapidly and I want you to know that you out there are not forgotten that I pray for you and I know these here also pray for you and uh, as we see things getting worse and worse the time will come I think before too long until God directs that we gather ourselves all together and get out of the cities even those in the alternative media now are saying pretty openly if you don't do anything else get out of the city you know, even some of those out in the world are waking up and realizing that the most dangerous place to be is in a city. And uh, some of them were talking about prepping in place and filling their closet with food and this and that. And some of them are becoming more realistic now and realizing that a little food in the closet and a few guns is not going to save you from what is coming. It uh, is horrendous. And there's only really one place of protection that God has designated, and that's our refuge in Zion. So that is where we will have to come, ultimately, if we are to be protected at all by God. Now, we know our nation is going to have a little less than 10% survive, so... Uh, there are places people can go, and they'll have a much better chance of survival, let's say, in a remote area away from people. Uh, because if you're around people and people get hungry, then people are going to kill, and they're going to eat you. And on and on it goes. So these times are coming, and we're watching daily to see how it's shaping up, and it's shaping up very, very rapidly. So let's be aware and be alert, and certainly those here need to be praying for those out there that God will give wisdom and understanding and, and uh, knowledge as to when it is time to uh, remove and get away from what is coming. We know from Jeremiah 50 and 51 that uh, some will come just ahead of the northern army saying, how do I get to Zion? Well, those of you on the phone line pretty well know how to get here. Uh, and you know pretty much the time schedule of when things begin to truly come apart in earnest. Uh, so I pray God will give everyone wisdom and understanding about when is the time for them to get away from what is coming as a freight train. You can hear it now. It's, it's getting close. So we're all aware of you and, and certainly are in our thoughts uh, as this time draws near. And not just you, but uh, those around the world that God says he will gather. We just went quickly through Haggai last week, showing that the temple has to be built. 
and that as it is being built, he says it's a little while in verse 9 of chapter 2, and I will shake the heavens and the earth. So the temple has to be built just shortly before God begins to shake things. Then he says at the end of Haggai, speak to Zerubbabel saying, I will shake the heavens and the earth. And at that time, he's making Zerubbabel a signet or a banner or a flag uh, of God. So uh, he shows during the temple building, it's a little while. And right after the temple building, uh, then he's going to start the shaking. Both uh, the temple and Jerusalem have to be built, of course, as it says there in Isaiah 44, that the temple will be built and Jerusalem will be built. And we know the abomination is set up right after uh, Jerusalem is built, 70 weeks after the command to build it. So it's going to be approximately 70 years in the building, or 70 months in the building, I mean. So uh, Haggai tells us that this temple building will occur just right at the end, just before God begins to do all the shaking. So there's some evidence right there that Haggai is not talking about an ancient temple of Herod or Solomon or something. It's talking about the end times when God begins to shake the heavens and the earth, and that hasn't happened yet. So obviously this is yet ahead of us. And just ahead. Let's get into Zechariah a little more. I got into the first chapter last week where he warns us not to be like our fathers, the prophets, uh, or not to treat the prophets the way our fathers treated the prophets is more the way to say it, because they stoned them and killed them and wouldn't listen to them. And here we have all these prophecies laid out before us and people are not listening. They're not paying attention. They just don't get it. But we had better hearken. We'd better listen to Haggai, to Zechariah, because it's right here at the beginning of Zechariah that he gives this warning. And we know already, having been there many times, that the olive trees of Zechariah 4 are the same as the olive trees of of Revelation 11, the two witnesses, and they proclaim the gospel around the world as a witness just before the flight to Zion. So, this is very much an end-time book, and the warning is for now. It's for you and me. Now, I concentrated a little more this morning in studying this first chapter of Zechariah. I've I think I've kind of understood it in the past, but I think I have a little better grasp of what it's saying and more of the detail of it uh, as of now. So let's look at that beginning in verse 7. Uh, this is the 24th day of the 11th month. Now, Zechariah, as I mentioned last week, began in the 8th month of the second year of Darius. Haggai started his message on the first day of the sixth month. So he was into uh, his message when Zechariah was inspired to begin this message. In other words, Zechariah comes out of 
Haggai. Haggai is an introduction to the leaders and God saying that he is going to stir a people to come and work and that he will be with us the way he was uh, in Egypt and that the gold and the silver is his. Speaking of the gold and silver mentioned in Isaiah 45 that he is going to reveal and that he will use it for his purposes and it will be used for his people Jacob. Now, the symbolic uh, Gentile king who discovers it uh, will have use of it, but as of Ezra and Nehemiah, it says there that uh, he opened the treasury and allowed them to have everything they needed to do the work they had to do. And in Haggai, he just flat out says, that gold and silver is mine, and therefore uh, it will at least a great deal of it be used for his purposes. And building the temple is the context in which that is used. He says, go get wood from the mountains and build a temple, but then he says the gold and the silver is his, and I'm sure that silver and gold will be used in decorating uh, what is apparently a wooden structure, uh, and then the articles or artifacts of the original temples will also be delivered up, I'm sure, and be placed there. So, that is one of the end-time works of the final work of God. Uh, one of the chapters, let's say. The end-time work stretches from the beginning of Isaiah 40. Herbert Armstrong is gone, and a message of comfort to the church comes out that God will bless uh, and double the amount that he has cursed. And goes on from there. So, first is a message, uh, and then a gathering in Haggai and the building of the temple. Now, out of the midst of that story about the temple comes this one. He says, in the 4 and 20th uh, day of the 11th month, 924 is the day of blessing there in Haggai. From this day and forward will I bless you. Uh, that was yesterday, this year. I did not really expect anything. I expect, if anything, probably next year is the year because we didn't see uh, the gathering in the beginning of the temple being built uh, according to the schedule that apparently is laid out in Haggai. Uh, that message came in August, the sixth month. And then in the seventh month is the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles, and he's talking about... Uh, that building of the temple as well. And the real blessing that is needed to accomplish it apparently comes on 9th and 24th. So you have to have the gathering in the beginning uh, before the blessing of the temple building can really begin. So I don't think it... Uh, I did not really expect anything this year. If anything, I expect it next year based on some scriptures that we'll probably read today. Anyway, this message came in the 11th month of the second year of Darius. Same year as Haggai, just a little later in the year. Uh, second year of Darius still. Here comes the word to Zechariah saying, I saw by night, and behold, a man riding upon a red horse. Now, first of all, this is set at night. 
so this prophecy then is probably from that, I take it, during the time when the church is still in the dark, uh, having been scattered, having been spewed, and not knowing what's going on. Uh, so he goes back that far. Now, we see a 10% remnant being gathered in Haggai, but we still see the overall church in darkness. So I saw by night, and this may flash back even before Haggai in that sense, that during the time of darkness, because it will mention the 70 years down here, and uh, we'll comment on that more, but during that 70 years is a time of captivity within Babylon. And we'll see that in several scriptures. So during that period of time then, I think is what this is referring to, I saw by night, while it was still dark, and maybe even before uh, the signs and wonders of, uh, of Zechariah 3, and before the gathering even begins, he's talking about a period of darkness. And behold, a man riding upon a red horse. Now, what does a red horse symbolize? If you go to uh, Revelation 6, you have the white, the red, the black, and the pale laid out there. And the red horse symbolized taking away peace, being able to kill, and, and given a great sword. That's Revelation 6. So a red horse in the book of Revelation shows peace being removed and death coming. Now, Revelation 6 is an end-time prophecy, uh, and that is specifically there about the seven seals. So, if we're to take that symbolism and apply it here, we're talking about a time of darkness when death and destruction come. And he stood among the myrtle trees that were in the bottom. Trees is not actually in the uh, in the Hebrew, just myrtle or myrtles, and it could be uh, speaking of. It probably is speaking of a myrtle tree, which was not a great tree. Uh, let's see something about myrtles here. What does what does myrtle symbolize here? Well, first of all, if you go to Isaiah forty-one, which is the beginning of in the beginning of the message to the end time latter temple. It says that one of those seven trees that are planted in the wilderness in the desert is the myrtle. So very clearly in Isaiah, at the time that the gathering is coming, the church is symbolized, at least in part, by a myrtle tree. So when we see this in this context about the end time and the two witnesses in the gathering... Uh, it has to be referring to at least some part of the church. Now let's read a little bit about the myrtle, and maybe it will help us understand. I took this from several Bible dictionaries. Uh, the word, or the, the name Esther in Scripture, uh, you know, we've done the story of Esther and we keep Purim now, but Esther means myrtle, same definition. Now, what was Esther? She was a joy. She was a blessing to the Jews. Uh, she symbolized something good 
and righteous uh, before God. So Esther is a very important personage in the Bible, and very important personage for us because we talk about the myrtle tree in Isaiah 41 when the, when the remnant comes to be gathered into the desert, and it's here in Zechariah 1 that this red horse was among the myrtle. Now, the myrtle tree uh, is aromatic. Uh, we use the blossoms to make perfume and for seasoning as well, for foods. Uh, it's a dark evergreen tree with white flowers, at least as so identified by the dictionaries. Uh, and God does say he is going to raise up the green tree, and uh, what will it have on it? Well, those clothed in the white of righteousness. So perhaps the flowers on the myrtle tree represent uh, God's people, the righteous people of God. The myrtle is symbolic of peace and joy, and I think that's why God chose to name Esther Esther. Uh, because she symbolized peace and joy in the removal of enemies. Now, we're going to see that here in Zechariah 1 in a little while. Uh, on the comments about Zechariah 1, it says that the myrtle is not a stately cedar, but a low-growing, fragrant, small tree or shrub, basically. Now let me refer you back to Ezekiel 17. There it says under Herbert Armstrong, uh, the it was planted in good earth, planted in a good place among the willows. That's down in the bottom where the water is, is where the willows grow. So it was planted in the bottom, the river bottom, uh, and planted in good soil. It says, though, that it did not grow into a stately cedar, but it grew into a low-growing, more of a vine, whose roots went in to uh, he who planted, which was Herbert Armstrong. So we go through that whole thing about Worldwide Church of God and how it was a low-growing shrub or bush or small tree, uh, didn't become stately, and how it would be removed, and then how God would take a small twig uh, and plant again. And then we read in Isaiah 41, he'll plant seven trees in the wilderness, representing the seven churches of Revelation 2 and 3. So, when he mentions the myrtle here, let's not picture a stately cedar tree. Let's picture something that is lower and more of a brush or vine-like uh, description, such as Ezekiel 17. So, this is during the night, before light is shed upon the situation, and you have a red horse among the myrtle trees that were in the bottom. Now, this myrtle tree was in the bottom land, where worldwide was planted, the good soil, among the willow trees where there was water. Good doctrine. So it's pictured in the bottom, but not being a stately tree, just like Ezekiel 17. No difference. Okay? And behind them 
were there red horses, speckled and white. Now, speckled and white, if you go back to uh, Revelation again, the white horse is to conquer and in conquering, to rule over, to destroy, to take over, if you will, to conquer. And the pale or the uh, reddish-white bay horse represents death and hell uh, in Revelation 6. The sword, hunger, death, and beasts. And that one in the uh, seven seals is given power over a quarter of the earth. So I'm not trying to use Revelation 6 specifically here because Revelation 6 is about the whole world and when those seals are unleashed. But the, uh, sim- the symbolism of those horses very likely comes back here to Zechariah 1 and again in Zechariah 6, which we'll go to, because it's talking about the same event here in, in chapter 1 as it is in chapter 6, which I think I understand better now. So let's go on here. Uh, among this myrtle, or down with this myrtle, this church, uh, there's a red horse and a white horse, and then the bay or the speckled horses, and they all represent famine, pestilence, disease, and warfare that kills. Now, I've used Ezekiel 5 many times to show that this happens first to the church and then to the nations of Israel. Uh, and indeed, it is past history now, as we look back over the last 30-some years, that the church has, on a spiritual level, suffered famine and pestilence, uh, the sword and captivity going back into Babylon. Uh, Zechariah 5 shows how the church was taken back by two evil birds, unclean birds, and set on its base in Babylon. Clearly, the Tkachas taking the church back to the evangelical Protestant world and setting it up in Babylon. So, I think here, it's fairly clear on that basis that this red horse and the white one and the uh, speckled one represents the destruction of the myrtle tree. Ezekiel 17 says that that low-growing vine tree under Herbert Armstrong would be destroyed. They would wither in the furrow uh, of its planting and that the Pekachas would finish it off, take it back to Babylon, as Zechariah 5 says. So I think this is talking about the time of captivity of the church within Babylon and being destroyed while still in Babylon. Now I'll back that up a little later in the chapter here and show you how it fits together and how that makes sense. Then said I, O my Lord, what are these? Now, the way he puts that is interesting. When people make an exclamation of not understanding, or of fear, or of uh, some negative emotions that are a surprise to them, let's say, what is the common expression you heard, you hear, in this day and age? (laughs) 
Oh my God. What they say. Oh my God. It doesn't have to be anything too spectacular. They use it commonly all day long. But an explanation, an exclamation of surprise or fear or anger or something will bring that kind of reaction. So the man that stood there said, Oh my God, or oh my Lord, what is this? And the angel that talked with me said to me, I will show you what these be. So he is going to show now what he's talking about. The man that stood among the myrtle trees answered and says, These are they whom the Eternal has sent to walk to and fro through the earth. Well, now, who is that speaking of? Let's go to Zechariah 6. Here he talks about four chariots coming from between two mountains. The mountains were mountains of brass. Now, we're still in the context here, and the bottom part of this chapter shows it very clearly. We're still in the context of the two witnesses and the gathering of people to work on the temple. Go on down and let's see that. Uh, he talks about giving some some crowns, and then he says in verse 12, Speak to him, saying, Thus speaks the Eternal of hosts, Behold the man whose name is the branch, the, the right bough or branch, and he shall grow up out of his place, and he shall build the temple of the Eternal. So wherever he is, he's going to grow up out of that and come and build a temple. Even he shall build a temple of the eternal. Well, that's what the whole book of Haggai is talking about. Zechariah 6 says, Zerubbabel has laid the foundation and his hands will finish the temple. So, so that's what this is talking about. And the, at that time, Joshua and Zerubbabel will have a council of peace between them. They aren't that way all the way through. And then crowns to these four people. But notice verse 15, to make my point further. They that are far off shall come and build in the temple of the eternal, and you shall know that the eternal of hosts has sent me to you, and this shall come to pass if you will have diligently obey the voice of the eternal your God. So clearly... This is a reference to the building of the temple by the remnant who come to build in Haggai. And the same temple that Zerubbabel builds and completes in Zechariah 4. And the context of the first part of chapter 6 is the same. Speaking of the same period of time. This isn't something down in Revelation 6 having to do with the destruction of the world. This is having to do with destruction instead of the church. Remember all those scriptures we've read which says destruction will come first on the church, then on the world. And the 90% of the church will go into that destruction of the world, the great tribulation. So this destruction is uh, connected with the church. Uh if you go down to verse 5 of chapter 6, These are the four spirits of the heavens which go forth from standing before the Lord of all the earth. 
And then they walked to and fro through the earth, verse 7. So, when he says back here, these are the ones that walk to and fro through the earth, he's making a reference to those that walked <laughs> to and fro over the earth. And that reference is in chapter 6. So it's talking about the same chariots and the same horse, uh, horsemen, or the same horses, excuse me. Now, we know it's among the, the church, the myrtle, and I think the myrtle here represents worldwide church of God, because it is the one that was destroyed by the red and white and speckled horses. So, it's standing among the myrtles, meaning that there's destruction within the church. That's been going on now, and still is, for that matter. Now, notice in chapter 6, he says he sees these four chariots with these horses coming from between two mountains. The mountains in biblical prophecy symbolize governments or institutions. And the mountains were mountains of brass. So these chariots come from between two governments or two temples, two institutions, two churches. The whole uh, context here is of the two churches worldwide, which was the latter former temple, and the latter temple, which is to come. So we see that chapter 1 is talking about the time of these two mountains or these two governments, the churches of God. It's in that context. The first chariot were red and then black. Uh, third was white and then the grizzled and bay or speckled and so on were the fourth chariot. And I answered and said, what are these? Same thing he said back in chapter 1. He's reiterating the story, just like he is taking the story of Haggai and Zechariah 4 and encapsulating it and summarizing it at the end of this chapter 6. So it's talking about the same thing. What are these? And he said, these are the four spirits of the heavens which go forth from standing before the eternal of all the earth. Now it mentions the four uh, in chapter 5 of Revelation, just before the uh, seals are unleashed. So it's the same angels in both cases. One has to do with the churches. One has to do with the destruction of physical Israel and Judah. So these are the ones that go from before God, because God's hand is in this. Remember all through the book of Lamentations where God says, I have done this to you. I have destroyed you. I have, and it says it, I don't know, 30 or 40 times that God is the one who has done to the church what has been done. You only need to tie that with Revelation 3 where he says, I will spew you out of my mouth. So this destruction on the church isn't from Satan. It's from God. Him spewing us out. Now, he may have allowed Satan to do a lot of the work, like he did with Job, but that was in God's direction, too, for Job's sake. So, these are the four spirits coming from God who caused this destruction. 
So let's go on down verse 6 now. The black horses which are therein go forth into the north country, and the white go forth after them. So they divide up. The black and the white go north. Uh, the white and the black represent famine and conquering. So, these four that go to the north are there to bring some type of famine and some type of conquering, okay? If the symbolism between Revelation 6 and here is the same, and I think it is because it's talking about the same basic period of time, as are all the prophecies. They're talking about the end-time church first, spiritual Israel, and then physical Israel. So if Revelation 6 is about physical Israel, these are about spiritual Israel, and this comes first. I'll show you that in a minute in, in the timeline. Okay, so the black and the white go north, and the grizzled go forth toward the south. And the bay went forth and sought to go that they might walk to and fro through the earth. And he said, go ahead, or get away from here, go walk to and fro through the earth like you want to do. Well, that could be God's angels telling Satan's demons, that's what you want to do, go ahead and do it. Uh, just like God told Satan, there's Job, I know what you'd like to do to him, go ahead and do it, but don't kill him. So he told them to go ahead and walk through the earth. And he says, Get, go ahead and do it. Then, he cried, then cried he upon me and spoke to me, saying, Behold, those that go toward the north country have quieted my spirit in the north country. Now, here we know that the destruction of Israel comes from the north, from the north country. Uh, the Assyrian comes from the north. All the prophecies indicate that. Well, here were two horses that went to the north, and they represent conquering and famine, and they quiet God's spirit. Now, if there's someone to the north that he sends these upon, his spirit is going to be quieted by what they do. Okay? Where was Joe Koch from? Chicago, north. He came and he destroyed. And Zechariah 5 says that he and his son, the two unclean birds, uh, did away with the law. That's in the context there. The flying roll is the same size as the Ark of the Covenant. And they set the church up back in Babylon. Babylon's represented by the north as well. Well, what happened to worldwide? The white horse and the black horse happened to worldwide. It was destroyed. And is dead. Sardis is dead, Revelation 3. So, what did that do? That quieted God's spirit. We're going to see a little later in Zechariah 1 that he was displeased and became sore displeased with the heathen and the church. So when he sends these horses against the church, 
They scatter and destroy it, spiritual famine and death and conquering, which is what has happened to the church. And now God has had his spirit quieted in that that which was evil to him and evil in his eyes is now gone. It's been destroyed. So that quieted his spirit. We're still in the talking here about the gathering and the two witnesses and that which is just in front of us. So this is just prior to that. So he mentions it in chapter 6, just prior to mentioning the leadership and the gathering to build the temple. So this is something that apparently happens in chapter 6, just before the gathering and the temple building. The same is true in chapter 1 when we get back there. It is there in the context before the events of the leaders and the gathering of the people commence. So speaking of the time just before that, and I'll show you that in a little bit. So they quieted God's spirit by uh, the famine, pestilence, conquering, and so on that they did in the church. And the word of the Eternal came to me saying, Take of them of the captivity. He starts another work. These that are come from Babylon. Now, does he tell us in Micah 4 that we are to leave the city and go dwell in the wilderness even to Babylon? So here are these which came out of the midst of Babylon, part of those who began to gather. And of some of the leaders of those that have been in captivity in Babylon, as they come out, they're going to be used. And then it talks about the two leaders coming to see eye to eye and people coming to work on the temple. <coughs> so God basically disposed of worldwide. And then he starts a new work. Now this harkens back to where we started this series. Isaiah 39, Herbert Armstrong's sons that came in under him were made eunuchs, powerless, and went back out into Babylon and have been able to accomplish virtually nothing there. Just as it says here the church will be destroyed by these horses and chariots that come from between the two churches. Former temple, latter temple. Former temple started coming apart when Herbert Armstrong died and then it got worse and worse under the Kachas and then God sent a spirit of conquering and death and famine among them. I finally understand where this fits because it's right in the context of Haggai and Zechariah. So it's Got to be referring to this, not Revelation 6 and the nations physically of Israel. That comes later in the book of Revelation. This is talking about the church, straightforward. So, let's go back and see that in Zechariah 1, because it says that these horses were the same that went and walked before God to and fro over the earth. Well, that's obviously talking about the ones in chapter 6 because it's described the exact same way and what they did and how they quieted God's spirit by getting rid of the heathen who had come into the church. So, uh, 
Verse 11 is where we left off. And they answered the angel of the eternal that stood among the myrtle tree, among the myrtle, trees isn't in there, and said, We have walked to and fro through the earth, and behold, all the earth sits still and is at rest. Now what he's doing is he's dealing with the church here and sending it into spiritual captivity and destruction before the earth goes into complete turmoil. The earth is still sitting basically at rest here. Uh, we have World War III looming on the horizon. We have all these shakings and destruction of the physical nations of Israel just ahead of us. So he says this is still in that period of time when the destruction comes within the church, it's while the earth is still sitting at rest. Now, at rest, uh, I think has to be understood in the light of Matthew 24, where it talks about increased earthquakes and volcanoes and, and all kinds of things, and then will they deliver you up to be killed. So it's not a total rest by any means, and hasn't been. <laughs> what did I read? America's only been like, in its entire history, only about 30 years without a war going on somewhere. So when it says at rest, it means not a total warfare in World War III type of a situation. So these things, these troubles are increasing, yes, but it hasn't gone to outright uh, end-time world war yet. So that's the period of time we're in, the lull before the storm. Then the angel of the eternal answered and said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you not have mercy on Jerusalem and on the cities of Judah, against which you have had indignation these threescore and ten years? Now, in the context of the end-time church and the temple building, and in the destruction of worldwide up here just before this, and in chapter 6, he says, how long before you show mercy on the church? Now, you and I are sitting here and have been in the posture for some years now of phrasing this very question. How long, O Lord, before you turn your face back to us and bless us? Habakkuk approached that. How long, O Lord, he said. And he got a little frustrated. And then he says, I think I better just back off and shut up and sit on my watch until this happens. So he's asking the same question here that has been in your mind and mine now for quite some time. Mine since 96, when I first learned of these things. And thought, how long? And I'd never expected at that time that it would be this long. But neither did I understand the 70 years back then. Now we need to understand this 70 years. Because it's talking about you and me, and now is what it's talking about. We're the one been asking the question. And the angel has asked the same question. How long? And you've had indignation these 70 years. Now... Let's go into that a little bit. Uh, 
first of all, let's go to Jeremiah 25. There's several I want to point out here. Daniel 9 we'll go to because it says that Daniel understood the 70 years based on what Jeremiah had said. Okay? So, Daniel is what? It's an end time prophecy. So the 70 years mentioned in Daniel, and I'll show you that, have to do with the end time. And he understood about the 70 years from, from Jeremiah. Chapter 25. Here comes the word to Jeremiah. Uh, during the first year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. The which Jeremiah the prophet spoke to all the people of Judah and to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, saying, From the thirteenth year of uh, Josiah, even to this day, this is, or that is, the twenty-third year the word of the Eternal has come to me, and I have spoken to you, rising early and speaking, but you have not hearkened. And God sent all his servants the prophets, rising early and sending them, but you didn't hear. And he says, I've been preaching for 23 years now, and you still haven't heard. Now from the time that God began to give understanding of this message you're hearing right now, until now is almost 23 years. That message came in the middle of January 1996. 23 years will have expired about the middle of January next month. That's 23 years. Now, he started in the first year, and this was to be a 70-year captivity. Now, a false prophet came up and said, oh, it's going to be a short captivity, don't build houses, and so on. And I wondered, well, how does this fit in with the end-time church? Because clearly here in Zechariah 1, he's talking about the 70 years and speaking totally in the context of the church. So the 70 has to apply in some way to the church. Okay? And this message came for 23 years. Now, I didn't begin preaching this message until the first week first Sabbath of February in 96. But the knowledge of it came in the middle of January. I think probably the 16th, which is 10 years to the day after Herbert Armstrong died. I didn't write it down, and I don't remember, but I know it was right in that time span of the 13th, the 16th, or 17th. And uh, now that I understand a lot of these prophecies, 10 in Scripture is... Uh, organized beginnings and it may have been 10 years to the day after Herbert Armstrong died in January 16th of 86 until God revealed the understanding of what the former temple was under Herbert Armstrong and what the latter temple is uh, in building the temple and the work of the very end time church the latter temple I suspect that was the day but I can't prove that, and I don't know that for sure. But it just seems to fit. But anyway, come the 1st of 2020, 
uh, about the middle of the month was when this message came and it began to be preached the first Sabbath in February to Church of the Great God. That's where I was at the time. So the 23 years either ends January about the middle of January or the first Sabbath of February. And I think we're getting very, very close to these things happening. Now, why did he mention 23 years? Because I think it has application to today. Why bring it up? How long you preached? You don't see the others doing that. But here we're talking specifically of the 70 years. So this has come. And what has my message been? The message of the prophets. Verse 4. He says, he gave you all these prophets, and you didn't listen. All I, I'm not necessarily a prophet. I'm just reading to you about what the prophets said. And that's what Zechariah 1 says. You didn't listen to the prophets. You're not listening to what they have to say for the end time. And he said, turn you again, everyone, from his evil way, and when you seek me, you'll find me, and I'll be found of you. A little further down here. Now let's go to chapter, well, wait a minute. Uh, No, I want some more here. Verse 11, This whole land shall be a desolation and an astonishment, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon seventy years. Okay, he says, I've been preaching this now for twenty-three years, and there's going to be a long captivity. Now how does that translate to now? It shall come to pass, when seventy years are accomplished, that I will punish the king of Babylon, and that nation, says the Eternal, for their iniquity in the land of the Chaldeans, and will make it perpetual desolations. So, here is a message that he says, I've been telling you now for twenty-three years, this is to be. Now, I believe the 70 years that he's referring to as an end-time prophecy have now been finished, and we've been hearing about it for 23 years, and it's at the end of that 70 years that the king of Babylon will be punished. Now, I've drawn from the church this, and I think that it fits. Because remember, Jeremiah said that it is going to be a long captivity, therefore build houses, dwell in them, have children, and so on, because it is to be a long captivity. And here he says clearly, when the 70 is finished, it is after that that the king of Babylon and Babylon will be destroyed. We know that to be the United States of America and Israel. So, How does that equate to the church? What can we find within the history of the end-time church that fits that? And in analyzing the church from the time it began, under Herbert Armstrong, he was called in Oregon. He moved it to a city of merchandise, as Ezekiel 17 says, uh, down to Pasadena and L.A., in the American Southwest, the desert area. And there he formed a worldwide work that spread out and its roots went back to Herbert Armstrong. Now, there was a time 
when Herbert Armstrong understood that he could not, by himself, build anything. He learned that in Oregon, because he would go out to these towns and set up a revival meeting, whether it was in a tent or in a building, didn't matter. And he would preach, and people would respond, and they'd like it, and they'd say, we want to be part of this. And then he'd go back to Portland, and it would fall apart. He did this over and over. And he says, i got to do something different. So what prompted him to move to Pasadena? The idea of starting a college. The idea of getting some help. I can't do this by myself. I need help. So, he moved to Pasadena, found a place, and started the college in the fall of 47. And what was his instruction to those who were coming out from the college? Go out, build churches. Pastor those churches. We have a big work to do. It's going to take time. So I've started a college to give me help because I'll have ministers to go out and build these houses and dwell in them. Whether you're talking church houses uh, or whether you're talking pastor's houses or whatever. There was time to have children. There were time, you know, back then in the 60s, when I was a student in college, I still expected this thing to wrap up in 75 and Christ to be back. I didn't think it would be a long time in Babylon. That it was almost over. But it wasn't. Herbert Armstrong misunderstood, and so did I, and so did you. We didn't get the timing. Well, there's a reason for that. God didn't let Paul, Peter, and James, and John know the timing either. He kept that from them. And then they were killed and died uh, in the early first century. Or toward the end of the first century. So, it was going to be a long captivity. So when did Herbert Armstrong actually initiate a program to start a long-term memory nationwide and worldwide? It was at the beginning of the college. 1947. That's when it began to broaden and go out. So, if we use that date as the time of the church going out into Babylon and being in, in that sense, in the captivity of Babylon and proceed forward 70 years, where do we wind up? 2017. 70 years after fall of uh, 47 is the fall of 17. We'll get back to that in a moment. So what did we do? We went out. We built churches. When I graduated, they sent me out to pastor churches, as they did a lot of young men. Too young, too inexperienced, but that's all he had. And we were within the confines of Babylon, this nation. Now, what does he tell us in Micah 4? He says, at that point, you leave the cities, the captivity of Babylon, and you go out into the wilderness, and there I will deliver you. 
So there is a time when you're no longer in the clutches of Babylon. You escape from it and go back to the original promised land in Zion and Jerusalem where this thing started. And he says there will be a famine in Amos from the north and the west to the east and the south, but he leaves out the southwest because there is where the word will emanate from, just as it did from Pasadena. Except it won't be in the city now, it will be in the wilderness. So, we spent that 70 years living and dwelling among Babylon, and the whole time we were thinking, when do we get out of here? When do we jump the plane and go to Petra? Was the way we put it then. And some are still thinking that way. They still think that's where they're going. But we know from a thousand scriptures, we're going to Zion. You can't find one that tells you you're going to Petra. So go if you want, but I ain't. I'm going to Zion. I'm already there. Almost there. The edge of it. So we'll get back a little bit later to this. It is after the 70 years, the Babylon, and we've shown that to be America, the leader of Babylon, will be destroyed, as Revelation 18 clearly shows. Now let's go to chapter 29, down to verse 10. For thus says the Eternal, that after 70 years be accomplished at Babylon, I will visit you. And perform my good word toward you in causing you to return to this place. Jeremiah was in Anatoth near Jerusalem. And he said, when the 70 years are up, I'll return you to this place. Do you know where the original Jerusalem and Zion were? It's this place where we are today. This area. So, after those 70 years are accomplished, I'll visit you and perform my good word toward you. Now, he's had his face turned from us, having spewed us out all these decades since Herbert Armstrong died and since the Red Chariot came among uh, the church, the myrtle, the tree. Then he's going to return blessings. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Eternal, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you an expected end, an, an end that you are to come to expect of happiness, joy, peace. And then he puts a condition upon us. Then shall you call upon me, and you shall go and pray to me, and I will hearken to you, and you shall seek me, and find me when you shall search for me with all your heart. And another very important thing, and I will be found of you. You'll find me, and I am sitting here waiting to be found of you. So when we put forth the effort, he will be found, and I will turn away your captivity, and I will gather you from all the peoples and places where I have driven you, 
And I will bring you again to the place where I cause you to be carried away captive. The American Southwest, more specifically, not Pasadena, but the wilderness and desert area of Zion. Bring you back to that place after the 70 years. He's already said, I'll destroy Babylon after the 70, and I'll bring you back and gather you after the 70. Okay? Now let's go to Daniel 9 and see what Daniel had to say. In the first year of Darius, so this is after Babylon was conquered, okay, in in history, Babylon was conquered, and this is a year, the the first year of uh, Cyrus's, or Darius's reign. Ahasuerus is actually who it was. It was during this first year that I understood by books the numbers of the years whereof the word of the Eternal came to Jeremiah the prophet. Now, what book did he read? Jeremiah, obviously. That would be uh, that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolation of Jerusalem. Jerusalem still in captivity, but this would be a 70-year deal. And that after 70 years would come relief and would come the destruction of Babylon. Now, it isn't immediate, but it's after the 70 are done. Now, why do I say it's not immediate? Because the 70s already ended when Daniel came to understand it during the first year of the Persian reign. Then if you go to Haggai, you see that the message didn't even come to Haggai and Zechariah until the second year of the Persian reign. And according to Ezra and Nehemiah then, they had to get permission to go build a temple, and then they had to get everything together and go, and that was probably from the Middle East, that Babylon, they came across the Atlantic and over here to build the temple, which is a journey. They took five months getting there, and we've gone over that. You can't, if you're going to go from the, the Euphrates to Tel Aviv or that Jerusalem, it isn't a five-month trip even on foot. It's not any, I mean, a five, yeah, five months. Much shorter than that. You would have to stay in camp and only walk an hour a day or something uh, if you're going to take five months to do it. But you can come from there to here, across the Atlantic Ocean in five months, by sailing ship and get here. So, he's talking about what Jeremiah understood. After 70 years, Babylon would be destroyed. Well, the Persians came in and destroyed Babylon. And he said that after the 70 years, he would then, if we would seek him, turn and bless us. Now, those are end-time prophecies, okay? It's not about then, it's about now. The word of Jeremiah came that he would accomplish this 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. So Jerusalem would be within the confines of Babylon 
just like the church has been under Babylon, and we want it out, and we want it out, and we never got out. And now I believe the 70 years is accomplished, and we are very shortly going to be out. Now, I'll put some scriptures together, I already have in the past, but to show that it's shortly thereafter, not not the day that it occurs. And I've already shown this. This he, he read Jeremiah after the Persians were there. And Haggai's message came the second year of the Persians. So nothing had happened yet, in other words, two years after the Persians had taken over. But there was a timeline that it would be sometime after, shortly after, the 70 years were accomplished. Now, if we take from 1947 in the fall, 70 years later is the fall of 2017. Now, what happened in the fall, the late summer of July of 17? That scripture in Amos that showed it would become dark at noontime across the land, and that would be the beginning of the time when judgment has been decided and will occur. Now God tells the nation, the land, all through the prophecies, I'm giving you space to repent. I'm giving you an opportunity. And I might still change my mind if you will turn to me. It says that over and over throughout the prophecies. But you know what? It doesn't happen. So there comes a time when the judgment is made. And then it is going to begin to happen. And I do believe Amos was describing that. He described the, the uh, summer fruit uh, there in Amos. And then darkness coming over the land in the middle of the day. And we had that... Uh, Equinox comes to mind. I can't say the right word. We had that eclipse come across this nation, middle of the day, and darkness was across the land. I believe that is when God made the judgment, right there, just before the 70 years ended, that he was going to destroy Israel, also known as Babylon, and there's no going back. The judgment is made. I show darkness coming across the land at noonday. Darkness is coming on you. I've made my judgment. This is it. Now, from the time the judgment is made until the actual initiation of it can be a short while. It's just like the jury says, guilty. Now, a verdict has to be, or a punishment now, the verdict is made. I think that happened in the summer of 17. Now, the sentence has to be uh, activated. Because God has already shown us through the prophecies what the sentence is going to be. Famine, pestilence, sword, going to captivity, over 90% of you killed. That's the sentence. And the final judgment, I think, was made there at the end of the 70 years. Now it's a matter of putting it into effect. And we have seen natural disasters and problems increasing since then. 
And in fact, that judgment that was given was punctuated by that huge hurricane that hit Houston. And it's been downhill ever since. Increasing, increasing, increasing. More earthquakes, more storms, more weather turmoil. Uh, crops now are not going to be produced the way they have been. This summer shows that in this fall. Couldn't plant, too wet. Then couldn't harvest, too cold, too wet. After a summer drought. It's honest, brethren. It's honest. God's, it's starting smaller and it will increase and increase until the Assyrian comes and destroys. So the 70 years, I do believe, is finished. And God's final judgment has been made. And it's too late now for this nation to repent. And what we see happening in Washington, D.C. with outright treason against the Constitution. And they're trying, they're doing a coup against a properly voted in president without any evidence, without giving him uh, a chance to present witnesses, to have anything. They've impeached him now and done it illegally all the way through. So Washington, D.C. is coming apart. At the same time, they're starting a major gun grab in Virginia. So this thing is escalating very rapidly. And they're simply denying the Constitution, which says Americans can have and bear arms to fight against a tyrannical government. The Constitution authorizes all Americans to have guns to put down a tyrannical government. And we have a tyrannical government pushing itself forth today, taking over for the duly elected government, and trying to destroy it utterly and take over. That's what the Second Amendment is for. Now, you and I are not going to go fight because that isn't our job. Our job is to be ambassadors for Christ. So we're not going to take arms and go against the Democrats or the Republicans or anybody else. But we're here to say this is part of the judgment of God that is coming down and is taking hold in such a way now that there's no turning back. The seeds for civil war have been planted. They are sprouting and growing very rapidly before our very eyes and will bear fruit very shortly, within months. It can't go on much longer before somebody starts shooting somewhere. That's just a fact. Not with the threats that are being made. Jeremiah 51 says it. There will be rumors and rumors and then violence in the land, ruler against ruler. Isn't that the way it's happening? The rulers are threatening each other. You couldn't say as a congressman a few years ago, so-and-so ought to be hung. So-and-so ought to be shot. So-and-so ought to be removed from office even though he was duly elected by the people. You didn't hear that stuff five, ten years ago. It's just in the last year or two. This judgment's been made. It's coming. It's it's fast upon us. But the gathering has not yet occurred. And it says that it will be just ahead of 
the Assyrian coming in and destroying. Because they'll be on their way saying, how do I get to Zion just ahead of the northern army? So the flight is going to occur, not in haste, but we'll have time, as Isaiah 52 says, to get to Zion before all hell breaks loose. Period of time in there. When does it start? (laughs) Well, watch and pray always. And know that it is at the door. It's very near now. Anyway, he says here that the 70 years in Jerusalem would occur. And then when he saw that, he repented and prayed and was concerned about God's sanctuary that is desolate in verse 17. And he talks about God's city and the people that are called by his name at the end of verse 19. And then he gives him a prophecy. Seventy weeks are determined from the time that uh, the commandment goes to restore and to build Jerusalem in verse 25. So Jerusalem is desolate today. It has been for many generations, the true Jerusalem. And there will come a command to restore it. And then (coughs) it will be in troublous times. (coughs) And we're certainly entering troublous times. And he says, when that 70 weeks is accomplished, then the abomination of desolation, verse 28, will be set up in the temple in Jerusalem and uh, Matthew 24 tells us when that, that, that abomination is set up, that's the time to flee to the hills, the mountains of Judea, which is where Zion is, right here in southern Utah, or the mountains of Judea, and that's where Zion is. So when the 70 weeks is done, that means Jerusalem, the city, has been built. And the beast and the false prophet come in and take over. And that's the time that you flee in haste. Don't go back in the house, nothing. And Christ quotes Daniel the prophet when he makes that prophecy in Matthew 24. When you see this abomination set up as told by Daniel the prophet, then flee to the mountains. So we have to come together and build the temple, we have to build Jerusalem, and as soon as that's done, the abomination will be set up, and it will be time to flee to the mountains of Judah, where Zion is. And that's after the 70 years ends. Okay? says the 70 years ends, then he prays. What, What do we do, Father? We're nothing. We're not important. We're Still sinful. Uh, forgive us. And then the message comes. You got some building to do. So between now and the time the abomination of desolation is set up, there had to be a message to come. There had to be a place prepared. There has to be a temple built. And Jerusalem has to be built. You want to know what the latter temple is going to be doing? There it is pretty well laid out for you. Now, I'm actually 
Well, I'm about on time right now. This clock's a little fast. I was going to go maybe uh, let's go to Isaiah 23 right quick. I'm going to go over time just a little bit because I want to finish this particular thought today. Isaiah 23. Now here is a prophecy against Tyre which I believe is New York and Washington and symbolism in the end time. And let's see, I want uh, 23. If I say 23, that's where I want to go. I'm 27. Here it talks about the ships of Tarshish in verse 14. Now this is very similar to the to Revelation 18, where it says Babylon will be destroyed and come out from her, my people, that you be not destroyed with her. That means the time when you come to Zion to get away from Babylon, because she's about to be destroyed. So don't be there in her. Well, we've been there in Babylon building a work, and that work has been destroyed now over a 70-year period, and it's almost time to be delivered from it just before it is destroyed. That's why we, the people go before the destruction that is coming, asking the way to Zion. Anyway, what does he says? You ships of Tarshish, your strength is laid waste. It shall come to pass in that day that Tyre shall be forgotten. Seventy years, according to the days of one king, after the end of seventy years shall Tyre sing as a harlot. Now, I believe this is the same 70 years we're talking about because it talks about the destruction of Tyre here. And he says after the 70 years, Babylon will be destroyed. The Persians took over then, but the church will be blessed at the end of 70 years, or shortly thereafter. Shall Tyre will sing as a harlot. That's not a pretty song. Take a harp, go about the city. You harlot that has been forgotten, make sweet melody, sing many songs that you may be remembered. Now what does it say about Babylon? In Isaiah 47 or 8, it's just, well, I'm not going to sit a widow. Everything's going to be fine. There's nothing wrong with us. We're a wonderful nation. And then he shows the destruction that comes on her. He shows her clothed as a harlot in Revelation 18, and how her destruction is coming. And it comes in an hour and a day, a very short period of time. So at the end of 70 years, you're going to be singing like a harlot. What does a harlot do? She uses perfume and music and all kinds of enticements to bring men to rent her is what she does. Men to give her a living. That's the song of a harlot. And it shall come to pass, after the end of seventy years, not at the end, but after the end of seventy years, that the Eternal will visit Tyre. Now, when God says, I'm going to visit you, that doesn't mean He's bringing frankincense and mirth. If you read all the prophecies, you'll see when God visits someone in this 
particular context, this type of thing, it's to bring punishment. He's, God isn't going to visit the whore, Tyre, and bring her gifts. This is a different type of visit altogether. And she shall turn to her hire and shall commit fornication with all the kingdoms of the world upon the face of the earth. She, at the end of that 70 years, is going to begin to go to all the kingdoms of the world and try to save herself. And she will put herself out to hire in order to try to save her sorry self. Now, what is America doing today? Our president, the ruler of Ephraim, runs to the Assyrian, to Putin, to his financiers that he has in Russia, who helped him through his bankruptcies, apparently. He's going to them for help. We are looking everywhere all over the earth because... Those in power in Washington understand that the dollar is almost done. Countries around the world are departing from the dollar and using their own currency, and they don't want our money anymore. They're getting rid of it as fast as they can. So what are we trying to do? We're trying to save our necks. We're going to be making alliances with all kinds of people to try to stave off this destruction that he has said will come. We're pictured as a harlot in Ezekiel 7, 16, and here, and in Revelation 18, because that's the way, illegally, immorally, America has come down to make her living. So as we commit fornications with all the kingdoms of the earth, instead of looking to God, we look to them to save us, to provide for us. To hire us. And her merchandise and her hire shall be holiness to the eternal. Does that mean she's going to keep these things that she's getting from among the nations? And she will be adjudged holy? No. She's a whore. It shall not be treasured nor laid up. For her merchandise shall be for them that dwell before the eternal to eat sufficiently and for durable clothing. So all the blessings that God gave this nation are going to be taken away from this great whore. And God is, at the end of this, going to start the millennium. And all these blessings that this nation has had is going to be turned to God's people at the beginning of the millennium. And all these blessings that we have enjoyed and perverted and fornicated with the nations with are going to be taken away from this government, from this people, and this people will be destroyed. And 10% almost will survive into the millennium and these things, these blessings of Ephraim will then be given to them. So it's talking about the end of this nation, the end of this people. All right, let's go to uh, one more, and that's Ezekiel 17, because I want to underline, I mean Ezekiel 7, uh, I want to underline here 
what we're talking about in 2017. I think the 70 years of Ezekiel, or I mean of uh, Jeremiah, ended in the fall of 2017. And just before that came the final warning from God with that uh, eclipse that occurred. But here he's talking about, in chapter 6, Ezekiel laying on his side for 430 years. And he goes on down to show that at the end of that 430 days or years, uh, trouble is coming. And the end has come, chapter 7, verse 1, upon the four corners of the land. The end has come upon you. So after 430 years, now I believe that this 430 started uh, with the Roanoke Colony, first permanent establishment, And 430 years later was 2017, late summer. So the 430 years that God gave us in slavery in Mitzrayim, He has given back to us in freedom in America for 430 years. That 430 years ended in 2017, and the judgment of God came across in a, an eclipse across the land at noon at that time. Just days or weeks apart from it, of the 4.30 ending. Now, the 70 ended there, I believe. The 4.30 ended there. Now, what does he say about the end of the 4.30? He says, that's the mark at which this judgment I have rendered will start to occur. But he doesn't say that it is immediate. The same with the 70 years. Jeremiah didn't grasp it until the Persians were in charge the first year. It wasn't even given to Haggai and Zechariah until the second year of the Persians. And then the preparation had to be made. So that puts it into the third year probably before the actual construction began. Now here, what does he say? Verse 4, end of it, you shall know that I am the Eternal. Thus says the Eternal, and an evil, and only evil, behold, is come. The end is come, the end is come. It watches for you, behold, it is come. The morning is come to you. O you that dwell in the land, the time is come, the day of trouble is near. Now, he didn't say it's immediate. It doesn't start the day after the 4.30 is ended. He says, it's come, it is near, not the sounding again of the mountains. It's not way off in the future. It's near. Now will I shortly pour out my fury upon thee. didn't say that same day, but shortly, soon thereafter. And accomplish my anger upon you. My eye will not spare, neither will I pity. He goes on down. Uh, behold, the day, behold, it is come. The morning is gone forth. The rod is blossomed. Pride has budded. Violence is risen up. So he says, this is going to take just a little while. Pride will come up. You're going to think you're fine. And it says, suddenly it will come upon you there in Revelation 18. For verse 12, the time is come, the day draws near. He keeps saying that over and over. 
that at the end of the 4.30, it's very near, it's come, it's not going to be like echoes again, it's very near. Well, we see about two years plus a little in the 70, after the 70 ends. Then we see here that when the 4.30 ends, it's shortly thereafter. Now, I've read you some scriptures, and we might go back there, I don't have time today. Which shows in the midst of the years, or in the third year, revive your work. So is it that, and it's talking about this end time in the context there. Is it in the third year then, after the 430 ends and the 70 ends, that God revives his work? That's a question, but I think it's very likely. And if you say in the midst of the time, there's about six years from the end of 2017 until 2023, when the tribulation, I believe, is scheduled to start. The preaching of the gospel around the world as a witness for three and a half years. So, if he revived it up in the midst of the years, those six... From the time that the final judgment is made in 2017 with the eclipse until that work is done and the final work of the witnesses begins is six years. Now we've been over two years now, the fall of 19, and we're ready to enter the third year, the middle of it, the middle of that period from 2017 to 23. Is this thing imminent? Is it becoming apparent in Washington, D.C. and around the world? As they are getting away from the dollar as fast as they can, as the, the Chinese are moving into Mexico and into America, the Russians are in America moving into Canada more and more, and the Muslims are moving in from every direction. Is this thing upon us, or is it not? Have we not had outright treason this past week in the halls of government in Washington, D.C.? And talk of civil war, and they're pushing for it in the state of Virginia. They're just hoping that if they make these, take away the gun laws, that somebody's going to start shooting. And that gives them an excuse for martial law and the peacekeepers of the UN to come in and take over. We are on the edge, brethren. We're there. These things are coming to pass. And I think God has given us the timetable and simply laid it out before us. And the end time work of God must proceed past the voice crying in the wilderness of comfort to his people past getting a place prepared, which we have been preparing, and it's not nearly enough prepared, and we need to get on that. And then the temple building, once that gathering comes, we got to be ready for them when they come, and I think they're coming soon. And then the start of the temple, and then Jerusalem, and then the abomination is set, and the final phase of the work will be the preaching of three and a half years. So we don't have much time if that be the case. 
And I do believe it is because I believe that's when the 6,000 years ends is in 2026, 2027, and Christ will probably return at that time. There's a lot to back that up, but I don't have time today. So let's understand we're there. And let's pray for one another and let's pray for ourselves. And let's pray that God accomplish His work and raise it up and revive it because it appears to be time.